every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Thursday, the 19th of October. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's GDP grew 4.9% year on year in the third quarter, beating market expectations and picking up from the previous three months. Economists had predicted third quarter year on year growth of 4.5%. The figure from the National Bureau of Statistics compares with GDP growth of 4.5% in the first three months of the year and 6.3% in the second quarter. China's retail sales climbed by 5.5% year-on-year in September, accelerating from a 4.6% gain in the prior month and exceeding economists' estimates. It was the largest increase in consumer expenditure since May and the ninth consecutive month of increases in consumer expenditure. President Xi has unveiled a new eight-point Belt and Road action plan and pledged the equivalent of 107 billion US dollars over the next five years into infrastructure projects. In a keynote speech in Beijing, President Xi defended his flagship Belt and Road initiative, casting the $1 trillion program as a driver of global growth, while saying that those that view it as a threat are doing themselves a disservice. Treasury yields rose to their highest level in 16 years as investors weighed up signs of US economic resilience and the possibility of higher interest rates. Benchmark 10-year Treasury yields rose 7 basis points to 4.91%. That's the highest since 2007. 30-year Treasury yields rose 6 basis points to 5.01%. Also notably, the 5-year Treasury moved as high as 4.94%, its highest level since 2007. JP Morgan said its clients have suggested the Fed may need to raise rates to at least 6% to sufficiently cool the jobs market and ease consumer spending. On today's money, call, today's money Talk, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and with a view from Taiwan, it's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'm also on Facebook with the same page name, Peter Lewis Money Talk, and on X, I'm at Money Talk R3. <laughs> On Wall Street, US stocks fell on Wednesday as Treasury yields surged to new multi-year highs. Global stock markets were also rattled on Wednesday after an explosion at a hospital in Gaza threatened to derail diplomatic efforts to de-escalate the war between Israel and Hamas. The S&P 500 was down 1.3% at 4,315, with materials, industrials and consumer discretionary the worst performing sectors. The Dow slipped 333 points, or 1%, to finish at 33,665. The Nasdaq Composite fell 1.6% to 13,314, with all of the magnificent seven big tech stocks weakening. At one stage, the VIX Volatility Index rose above 20, before settling 7.5% higher at 19.22%. Crude oil prices jumped on Wednesday as the escalating violence in Gaza raises concerns about supply disruptions elsewhere in the region. Brent crude rose as much as 2.5% in Asian trading Wednesday before slipping back in New York slightly to $91.32 a barrel. That's a gain of 1.6%. Spot gold prices rose to their highest level since July on Wednesday as concerns over the escalating conflict between Israel and Hamas buoy demand for safe haven assets. Gold added as 
much as 1.4% to reach $1,949 an ounce. The dollar was firmer on Wednesday with the dollar index printing a high of 106.63 before closing a third of a percent firmer at 106.56. The offshore Chinese yuan slipped to 7.3271 renminbi as bullish Chinese economic data and various banks upping their 2023 GDP estimates was overshadowed by Country Garden's missed coupon payment. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index edged down by 41 points or 0.2% to 17,733, giving up gains of 1% earlier in the session. The tech index tumbled 1.7%. Mainland markets were also lower. The Shanghai Comp it dips 0.8% to 3,059. Looks like we're going to see a further slump in Hong Kong stocks at the open. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 230 points, that's 1.3%, putting the index on track to open at 17,500 level. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And I'm delighted to welcome on this Thursday morning our regular Thursday guest, Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Good morning to you, Andrew. Hi, good morning. Uh, let's start with some of this uh, data, our big data dump out of China uh, yesterday. First of all, GDP grew 4.9% year on year in the third quarter. That beat market expectations and picking up from the previous three months, economists had predicted growth of 4.5%. The figure from the National Bureau of Statistics compares with year on year GDP growth of 4.5% in the first three months of the year and 6.3% in the second quarter. The economy expanded 1.3% on a quarterly basis after growth of just half a percent in the April to June period. Economists had been expecting quarterly growth of 1%. Andrew, a surprise? Uh, Not really, actually. I must admit, in the case of China, I had uh, given up the spirit to the extent that I was not expecting to see a recession, Okay, meaning what? That uh, it will grow negatively on any quarter? Absolutely not. And I thought, "Mm, they might just be able to make the 5%. And the rest of the numbers were a variation from stable to minor movements up and down. And hence, I call the Chinese economy the Malaise economy. You know, the kind of thing people ask you, how do you feel today? And you say, yeah, not that good. Okay, yeah, I hope it's better kind of thing. So this, in fact, confirms that. And I'm absolutely delighted because it does meet. It does mean that there will be very easy for them to hit the 5%, mm. which is meaningless, but it is important politically. Okay? They don't they don't slip down. And uh, things like investment, retail sales were slightly better, okay, as was uh, industrial output, which means that the economy is not doing great, but most definitely is not doing badly. So now let's move on from China, okay, because it's not going to grow. There's obsession with deflation in China. Oh, for God's sakes, you can't have everything okay. In other words, everywhere else is inflation. In China, inflation rate is below 1% on a CPI basis, and that's bad news. Well, why? At least the Chinese don't need to worry about inflation. You know, they will have 5% GDP growth with next to below 1%. Inflation. You know, other countries will give their right hand to get this. Look at the uh, UK. Okay, the Bank of England says, well, we're not going to move. We increased interest rates uh, 14 times since uh, last September, and uh, 
5.25, I remember well. We're staying there. The same thing with FAD, with Fed. Why? Because inflation is not beaten yet. Mm. So China overall, it is doing, and again, I will use uh, a slightly onomatopoeic, that's a nice Greek word for you, a nice sound of how it is doing, I would say, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is easy to be too gloomy, isn't it, about the Chinese economy? And maybe that's been a, a, a fault of a lot of economists. They just have been too gloomy. And, and even you know before this figure, um, growth of sort of over 4% is not bad anyway, is it? But as you say, it looks like you know all we need, I think, is growth of about 4.6% now in the final quarter, and they hit the 5% targets. And thank God we have stopped now saying that all the Chinese statistics are cooked. You know, back in my years with Solomon Brothers in the 1990s, uh, the place was crazy enough to give me money to employ a group of Chinese academic economists and a group of economists in Hong Kong. Remember, that's a long time ago. And their remit was specifically how good or bad the statistics were. And the answer is they were good enough for you to make decisions on. And in these days, even the Chinese themselves admitted that, for example, GDP growth rates taken on a provincial and then on a, uh, some total base, they, they just didn't, did, didn't, didn't click together. In other words, the provinces in general overstated. Well, all this is safely behind us now. So, you know, I look at the numbers and I say, this is as good as it's going to get in the sense that uh, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't distort anything. Okay. I, I, and it's very important also to understand that even in the political setup of China, it will be lethal to distort the numbers uh, uh, purposefully, mm. okay? It will be a, a suicidal. I mean, so whatever uh, political benefits would have been there, okay, they would have completely gone out of the window by simply putting a compass that tells everybody else where the economy is not going. Mm. So what I'm actually saying with these numbers, okay, I'm quite happy to say that we're looking at perhaps a 5%, and yes, I have... Uh, full faith on what I read the Chinese numbers to be, because I think they, 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 they have to reflect uh, uh, reasonably what the economy is doing. You know, it's absolutely impossible to lie consistently. Impossible. Mm. I was also an expert at one stage on Soviet statistics, but this was Soviet Union in the 1930s. And they were acutely aware that they were distorting the statistics on purpose, and they knew they were really doing incredible damage to themselves. I mean, but this was all, now we know it. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, we know what they were telling, telling amongst themselves. Well, so now I buy with a pinch of salt. The only place that has purposefully distorted their statistics, and they actually tried to imprison some 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 uh, journalists when they, they blew the whistle, was good old Argentina, my favorite place. <laughs> and the, the statistics on, on CPI, where nobody ever believed them. Okay, but anyway, they're going to have elections now. Very likely, they're going they're going to elect quite a maverick. Uh, he's going to de-dollarize, isn't he? He's talking about de-dollarizing. He, he wants to take a bulldozer to social services. Mm. <laughs> I, love, mm. I love his expression. <laughs> What, what was interesting is actually Argentina's just borrowed uh, $6.5 billion from China. <laughs> the, the, I, I love the way the president turns up at the Belt and Road Summit, taps uh, President Xi on the shoulder and says, can I have $5 billion? And he says, of course you can. In fact, make it $6.5 billion. We're, we're good friends. I mean, if that's how it's done, I'm not surprised so many people have gone well, to Beijing that, for this that, summit. That, that, however, is the Peronist president because the, the guy which is likely, I'm not saying to be elected is bitterly anti-Chinese. Okay, he has, he actually said, I will have absolutely nothing to do with Belt and Road. I will have absolutely nothing to do with uh, money from China. Let's not forget Bolsonaro, 
okay, the ex-president uh, of, uh, of, of Brazil, tore up practically every single piece of paper that had Belt and Road written on it. Mm. Okay? So, so, so in other words, whenever the Chinese rightly, they are proud of what they are doing, there was a one particular bit in Latin America that it just didn't drive. Mm. Again, in other words, uh, people said, we, we don't have, we really don't want to do anything with, to do with it, which doesn't mean anything. It means a political situation. But uh, watch out for Argentina now. Okay, well, we'll get on to the Belt and Road in a minute. Let me just get back a bit to the uh, the economic uh, data. There's been a lot of talk about what's important is not just the GDP growth, but the quality um, of growth. This is the, the the sort of the phrase that President Xi and government ministers use a lot as well. It's, it's hard to know what exactly they mean by quality of growth, but I presume it means making sure that that you know. Um, investment goes into productive areas rather than some of these non-productive investment areas under all these soft budget constraints, which you know are eventually going to get re uh, reversed. Are you seeing, as well as absolute growth, are you seeing an improvement in the quality of growth? Well, uh, look, this is, this is a, a negative positive, whatever that means in English. Again, and that is on the fixed uh, income investment. We had, uh, if I remember well, it was, yeah, it was, it was flat. August, these are all cumulative, it was 3.2, and in September it was 3.1, okay, over the nine or the eight-month uh, period. But investment in property was uh, a negative 9.1. Well, mm. all right, I consider this to be a compliment, because you don't want to be, in, be in investing in property. So at least if it is still flat and one part of it has come down, then by extension, all the other bits, given that the numbers are flat, must have increased a little bit mm. okay and all the other bits are the good investment you know it sounds like uh, cholesterol i don't know if you know this because my wife is a doctor and she always kills herself laughing and implies that this has a good economic uh application there is good cholesterol and bad cholesterol and what matters is the ratio of the two is mm. not how big or small your bad or good is the relationship between the two and hence uh, said he taking a deep breath and overdrawing the, the parallelism. The answer is, is yes, this is a sign of a good quality. Overall, fixed investment stays the same, and part of it, which is a bad, okay, investment in property has come down, which means for the level to stay the same, everything else must have gone slightly up. So this this data it does show, doesn't it? The, uh, the the problems still in the Chinese economy, which is really the property sector. That's the that's the weak link there, as you say. The investment in real estate declined nine point one percent. So it's falling faster because it was seven point nine percent in the first half of the year. Housing starts are down more than twenty percent uh, so far this year. This is the weak link still, isn't it? In the in the economy, absolutely. And that's and that's that's the good quality of investment. In other words, you don't want this to happen. You want your overall investment to stay at least flat or not to decline, and you want the bad investment, bad investment, whatever that means, okay? You want the investment in the property sector, which is which is suffering, not to increase, and actually, if anything else, to decrease. Mm. And what we're seeing is debt go up as well. Um, now, I know you don't like the debt-to-GDP ratio for all the reasons we've talked about uh, uh, before, but, but one thing that I do find what it does tell you is that if debt to GDP is going up, it means that uh, this debt is not going into productive areas of the, the economy, because if it was, that denominator would go up as well, and the ratio would stay the same. So it suggests that there's still this problem of, um, of financing going to the wrong areas, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, Peter, you've been a, a little bit naughty here. Uh, what you say is, is, let's say, true 
but wrong for a lot of other different reasons. The way in which this is normally looked is to say, for every addition of X to investment, what is the addition to GDP or not? And in China, this has been falling. Mm. Again, the productivity of investment. So I, you know, I, I will leave the ratio aside because it is misleading. And I will take something that it is not misleading, it is leading. Mm. <laughs> and that is the productivity of investment, which is in China, has been declining. Okay, mm. and this, this is... Uh, this, this is quite uh, quite quite an issue. Yeah, well, that's what we're seeing, though, isn't it? That we're seeing that you know this debt is being used. You would expect about five to six percent GDP growth given the amount of debts, but we're not seeing anything like that. So it does suggest that it's an awful lot of debt for little growth. Well, yeah, and the answer for that again, Peter, you are a big naughty boy. The majority of the debt, the majority of the incremental debt, has gone into property. Yeah, of mm. course. So it's, it's it's not surprising it's not adding anything. Yep. Now, um, on on some of the other uh, data on uh, on retail sales, that was also a positive uh, a positive number. Retail sales climbed five and a half percent year on year. That was up from four point six percent gain in the prior month, exceeded economists' estimates of four point nine. Biggest increase in consumers' expenditure since May. So, are you seeing signs here that maybe the consumer is back, and we've written the consumer off too early in China? I, I want to know. I want to know the leap on that. Now I don't have the numbers in front of me, and I don't want to guess. But I will guess we have a low base effect, and mm. also we have the effect of the of the golden uh, of the golden week, and possibly some of the after effects of of Chinese New Year. So in other words, yes, the consumers did spend, but I want to see if this is going to be maintained. Mm. And and look at what the consumer spent on the biggest item: tobacco and alcohol sales up twenty three point one percent. They were obviously being pretty sinful, weren't they, over the over the last month? Well, I like I like that. You know, I'm I'm a great fan in inverted commas of defence spending, and people say, Andrew, this is horrible. And I said, yes, yes, yes. You don't want to spend money on something that kills people, so we'll turn instead to alcohol and tobacco. Yep, that's what seems to be happening. <laughs> So, um, okay, let me turn to the Belt and Road um, Initiative, because that's the other big thing going on at the moment. The Belt and Road Forum uh, taking place in Beijing, well, finished yesterday, um, celebrating the 10th anniversary of, of the Belt and Road Initiative. President Xi was defending his flagship policy. He says the $1 trillion program has been a driver of global growth. He says those that are, view, are viewing it as a threat are doing themselves a, a disservice. And he's also pledged the equivalent of basically $107 billion over the next five years into the project, which is pretty well matching the commitment that was given back in 2017. And he announced an eight-point vision for the infrastructure scheme to support what he called high-quality Belt and Road cooperation. If you look back, Andrew, over the last 10 years, has it been a success? Has it helped uh, global growth? Uh, I'll split my answer in two parts. First, I will defend China against the accusation that they are doing it for political reasons. Of course they do it. Yeah. Why shouldn't they? And they're not the only one. Oh, come on. You know, nobody that turns around and expects that country are going to be philanthropists. You know, I'm a great believer in what the goal said very coldly and quietly. Okay, countries do not have friends. They have interests. Yeah, of course. So China is doing because it expects, okay, to be a soft way of, uh, of increasing its, its influence and its interest. Now, is that the best way of spending the money? And uh, given the cacophony of criticism about the way in which the loans were used, 
then one can split the answer. One can be negative on China. See, you lend money to these people and they misspend it. And the other part, it can be again positive and say, well, it is the countries that they misspend the money, not China. So in other words, perhaps the Chinese control over how the money was being spent. And I'm thinking of, uh, for example, of, of Sri Lanka, where there was there was a major, you know, the, the, the whole project had to be renationalized kind of thing because they could not repay back uh, the loans. And we have the same thing with several of the railway projects in, in Africa. But uh, this is not necessarily badly spent money, but perhaps badly spent money by individual countries. But of course, China cannot turn around and say, yes, yes, we gave money to A, B, C, and D, and they're pretty dreadful in the way in which they, they abuse their money. They can't. Mm. Okay, so they have to defend the position that this is good infrastructure spending. So plus, plus, minus, minus, okay, I definitely do not accuse China of using money for its political uh, influence. Of course it should. They will, they, will be, they will be stupid if they don't do that. Now, is that the best way of, uh, of, having, uh, of having soft policy uh, approach? Uh, the answer is, is uh, well, I, this is, is, I don't know. Because some of the notions were a little bit grandiose. For example, in Latin America, and this was, this was, this was quietly thrown away, was a railway that will join the Atlantic with the Pacific Oceans. And it runs straight through the Amazon jungle. Well, you know, that was a little bit provocative in terms of, uh, in terms of climate control and in terms of, uh, in terms of maintenance uh, of that uh, incredible, incredible forest. Anyway, so in sum, I am, I'm observing it with great degree of interest. I have taken on board all the criticisms and all the issues about uh, money not being spent properly and the fact that uh, even some uh, uh, not all that politically influenceable international institutions said that uh, it has now driven some of the countries to be excessively indebted to China. And China is not there to handle money out. So, you know, I'm not surprised that they say we want our money money back and we want interest and we want repayment. Mm. Of course, they so, otherwise, this is, this, is, this is philanthropy. And that's not meant to be philanthropy. Well, where does it go for the next 10 years? Because they can't spend at the sort of rate they have been spending now, have they? Because they've got a lot of domestic issues that need a lot of money exactly. as well, not least a, a bankrupt property sector. There's exactly. going to have to be a choice no here. And I have no idea if the average uh, Chinese person listening that uh, we will be giving another hundred billion to these uh, far off and distant countries to make, uh, uh, you know, to build up their railways. Why don't we keep the money at home? And the answer is, is this is part of foreign policy. This is, this is uh, you know, the, the criticism of that uh, has to be done on the basis that China chose this particular way to extend its influence. That's perfectly right. I think, you know, it would be completely hypocritical to say otherwise. Mm. To say, well, how can they do this? I mean, look, look at the states, look at the, oh, Biden also has now his own Belt and Road uh, uh, project that also involves the, the word 100 billion over X time period. And this is to counter the influence of China. Well, that's a kind of a compliment, if you want to. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, and now you said countries don't have friends, they have interests. Where does Vladimir Putin fit in? Is he a friend or is he an interest of, uh, of China? Well, uh, the, look, the consensus seems to be, and I'm afraid I do subscribe, is, is that the friend of my friend, sorry, the friend of my enemy is my enemy and the enemy of my friend is my friend, is not perhaps necessarily the best way of doing 
of doing this. And for me, in the case of, of China, my continuous concern was that this could be turned against China when it came to Taiwan. Because after all, Putin said, part of Ukraine belongs to Russia. It is a Russian part. And therefore, we're going to invade and take it over. And I'm not quite sure if people will say, well, is China trying to tell the world that what they have actually repeatedly said, that we will try everything possible, but we cannot exclude the possibility of occupying Taiwan, is, is part of it. And I thought that was not necessarily the best way of, of doing this. Mm. In other words, it should be very important to keep the two things separate. The claim of China on Taiwan has absolutely nothing to do historically, politically, economically with the claim of Putin on Ukraine. And uh, automatically people will do this because it will be a very convenient stick to hit China on the head with. Mm. And that, that will be, that's why, you know, uh, Putin is, uh, is, is, is a little bit like the drunk uncle that ends up invariably at Christmas dinners. <laughs> and you, you have to have him in, but it's not possibly the best, possibly the best guest you want to have. I mean, China, I mean, he, um, President Xi didn't mention the, the no limits this time when talking about the friendship. But nevertheless, the cost to China has been large of this friendship, particularly with the EU, hasn't it? Because it's really ruining its relationships with the EU, and who, who are one of its biggest trading partners, um, because of uh, this cozying up to Russia. Yeah, well, it's far be it for me uh, to lean over and uh, whisper advice to the ear of the Chinese foreign minister or to, or to President Putin, it is simply seen where the cost and benefits are. In other words, one has to be incredibly cold about this. Yes, you can go to bed with some very strange bedfellows, but uh, the cost-benefit analysis sometimes leave people like me with my eyebrow raised. Mm -hmm. okay, so China has every right to spend piles as they do on defense. Of course they do. Look at the states. So how can I possibly turn around and says uh, they have increased their budget this year, I understand, by something like 9% of defense spending. So they should. If you're not well armed, nobody listens to you. Mm. It's, it's as brutal as that. Let me let me finally ask you, wh where does Hong Kong fit into this? John Lee also spoke at the, uh, at the Belt and Road Summit. He says um, Hong Kong's going to grow into an INT hub to complement uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and is going to work to develop Hong Kong as an international hub for innovation and technology in line with these, this eight-point plan that, uh, that President Xi um, set out. What, do you agree with that? Can, is that oh, yeah, actually, it is consistent with what Hong Kong has been saying about the Greater Bay Area integration. And uh, Peter, actually, I must pat myself in the back. I must be one of the few living, uh, let's say, experts on the Great Bay Area, because when one tries to dig out concrete issues and concrete developments, uh, it is not easy. Okay, mm -hmm. And at least here, there has been a great degree of consistency as to what Hong Kong has been saying and what they have been trying to do, and that is to carry on building, uh, let's say, areas of excellence Okay, that spread now in the famous the Northern Metropolis expansion that has huge science parks involved into that, but also geographically and functionally linked with uh, science parks in China, in the Greater Bay Area, and not just in the SAR. So what uh, John Lee actually said makes, makes a lot of consistent sense. Okay, in other words, I didn't say, oh, no, here we go again. We're going to spend money on... Uh, on, on technology. We have been spending money on technology and it has been done, I reckon, in a consistent manner.
Okay. Well, Andrew, always good to hear your thoughts on a Thursday morning. Thank you very much for that and enjoy the long weekend that's coming up uh, here in Hong Kong. That's Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director for SafePro Group over in Taiwan. Very good morning to you, Ross. Good morning. Um, The Belt and Road Summit, President Xi Jinping has outlined a new eight-point Belt and Road action plan, defending his flagship projects, casting the trillion-dollar program as a driver of global growth and also pledging uh, to put in another 107 billion US dollars over the next few years into the the projects. Um, What do you make of the Belt and Road Initiative? Has it been a a success? Has it done what it said it was going to do on the tin? It's had its successes and failures. Obviously, they spent a tremendous amount of money and there's... uh something there, uh, there there is a lot of infrastructure that has been built around the world uh, and China or Chinese companies can make use of it. Uh, Of course, in recent years, the negative publicity has been enormous and debt traps uh, is is the word that that is frequently used to describe some of the country's uh, situation. Uh, They've built airports or ports that they don't need or can't afford. The payments uh, are beyond the means of some of these countries uh, to return. And uh, China might not get all its money back uh, from some of those loans uh, or might have to step in and operate the assets, uh, which might not be as productive as originally envisioned. Uh, So it's a mixed uh, report card, I, I would say. But the fact that they could have this uh, uh, forum and so many countries are attending, uh, I, I think that goes to the first part of what I said, that you know, there, there is something there. And, and uh, uh, you know, that means it's not a total failure. And I suppose it is impressive that you can get so many uh, presidents and, and high level officials from so many countries, 140 countries gathered. I don't think the US or Europe could do that, could they? Probably not. And of course, uh, they recently launched their competing plan uh, to go from Europe through Saudi Arabia uh, and then to India. Uh, But that plan is still in such early days. So, you know, not only the role of the the main backers of that plan remains to be seen, but uh, more importantly, what is the benefit for other countries? Again, it goes, it it bypasses or or crosses, I should say, so few uh, countries, uh, unlike the Belt and Road, which, uh, you know, as you said, 140 uh, countries are attending the, the forum uh, because they're involved in it. Um, so uh, you know, plans for the Western version, the democracy infrastructure plan uh, really remains to be seen how successful that'll be. But I'm wondering how many of those countries' delegates turned up uh, basically in the hope of getting some more money, as, as happened with Argentina. I mean, President Fernandez turned up, tapped President Xi on the shoulder, said, can I have $5 billion, please, before Sunday? Um, and President Xi said, yeah, in fact, make it six and a half, why don't you, as, as we're good friends? <laughs> it, it, it seems, you know, if, if, that's, the, if that's what's going to happen, I'd, I'd fly to Beijing as well straight away. Well, sure. People don't turn down free money. It's borrowed money that that might be a concern. So, uh, of course, to the extent that China is, is offering grants uh, and it's opportunities for Chinese companies to, to um, do the construction, 
uh, countries are, are are on board with that. You know, the fact the fact that it wasn't always local companies or local labor building out the infrastructure that that clearly has not been a deal killer for many of the countries that do have Belt and Road projects. Well, where does Taiwan fit into the, the Belt and Road, or does it at all? Is it just completely peripheral to to the Belt and Road Initiative? I'd say at the moment it's it's peripheral. To, uh, to the extent that obviously China is not paying or hasn't lent any money to Taiwan to build Belt and Road infrastructure here. But uh, on the other hand, to the extent that Taiwanese companies are still manufacturing in China and exporting from China to markets around the world, then of course, like any other exporter in China, they would stand to benefit. Does Taiwan want China to invest in some of its inf- infrastructure? I mean, presumably if it does, it would be a good way, wouldn't it, for China to actually develop better relations with Taiwan? Yeah, at the moment, uh, I, I don't think there there's political appetite here in Taiwan for any Chinese-funded infrastructure. In fact, when uh, the Democratic Progressive Party took over in, in 2016, both the majority in the legislature and the presidency, uh, one of the first things they did was launch a big infrastructure building plan, spent a lot of money on it. Uh, so I don't think Taiwan really wants for for the kind of infrastructure like ports or roads uh, that that the Belt and Road is known for. Mm. Where where does the Belt and Road go from here over the next decade? It's at the end of the first decade. Now, I presume that China can't lend the sort of money over the next 10 years that it was doing over the first 10 years, not least because it's got some domestic priorities it needs to sort out and is also making a claim on the money like the bankrupt property sector. Well, where they go from here is, again, probably try to collect some of those debts uh, so that, that, that the whole debt trap diplomacy thing you know, it remains to be seen how that plays out and how many countries uh, at some point turn into Sri Lanka where they couldn't afford to pay back uh, the, the loans for, for building a port. And then China steps in and takes over the control of the operations. So uh, if they're not going to be building as much then they're the, in the next few years, then the, again, t- what to watch for is use of these assets and how many of them make money and how many of them don't. Mm. Uh, but they're, they're not going to cancel the debt, are they? They've made that very clear. So, you know, there's going to have to be a lot of restructuring going on in some cases. Uh, for sure. And maybe there'll even be some litigation. So maybe some work for lawyers. Okay. Let's turn our attention to international um, things. President Biden uh, flew into Israel for a short one-day visit. Um, Very big gamble, isn't it? It's almost unheard of for an American president to fly into a war zone um, like that. Has the gamble paid off? Uh, A little bit in the sense that uh, Israel enjoys enormous political support in, in the United States Congress and in the public. Uh, there's been some polls in recent days that were released uh, that, that show there's there's very wide public support uh, for providing military assistance to Israel at, at this time as Israel goes to war against Hamas and possibly against Hezbollah on the Lebanon border. Uh, so to the extent that the public and the Congress are on board with this and uh, Biden going was to show U.S. support. Uh, I think politically, it seems for now that it was it was the right move. Uh, there'll probably be some assessments of uh, his personal performance in the sense that, you know, there are going to be people who say he, uh, he slurred his words or he looks you know, so old and exhausted. So there'll, there'll probably be some of that as well, or criticism of what specifically he said during his speech uh, last night, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong time. Uh, But uh, 
to the extent he went and showed U.S. support, I, I think that that's going to be a plus. But he's, um, he's ruined his relations with the Arab world, hasn't he? Um, the Arab leaders have cancelled their meetings um, with him. That's, uh, that's been quite a big snub, and um, it, it looks like it's just ex- exacerbated the divide now across the Middle East. Well, in recent years, there's been so much discussion about the U.S. exiting the Middle East and it's going to be focusing on the Indo-Pacific. And yes, the U.S. has has put more resources um, into the Indo-Pacific, whether that's military or investment, uh, the the IPEF, non-free trade agreement trade deal and things like that. Uh, but but I always like to say that the U.S. has not left the Middle East. And, and you know, not, not only does the U.S. still have troops on the ground in places like Iraq and Syria or have a, a, a large naval operations in the Persian Gulf. Uh, but but the, the time that the U.S. government spends on the Middle East is still extensive. We still see uh, Middle East countries like Saudi Arabia. They want the U.S. to make a deal uh, you know, that, that would facilitate uh, recognition of Israel. But in return, Saudi Arabia was asking for U.S. to provide security guarantees as well as to build civilian uh, nuclear power plants. So, uh, yeah, they might be mad at the U.S. at the moment. Part of that, it appears, is, is built on a faulty assumption that Israel was responsible for this tragedy at, at the hospital, where, where, in fact, it increasingly looks like uh, it's Islamic Jihad that was responsible for that, that it was one of their rockets that malfunctioned. Do we, do uh, we so, know that? Uh, I mean, do we know that? I mean, no, I know Israel says that, but, uh, and, you know, the, um, the Hamas denies that, or the Palestinians uh, deny it. But do we know the truth yet of what actually happened? happened there? You know, the evidence is increasingly looking that way. You know, it's just uh, you know, from the technical perspective, as Israel has explained, and the U.S. seems to be backing Israel up, you know, this just does not seem like the damage that would be caused by uh, the missiles that Israel has typically been using during uh, mm. the, the 10 days of bombing. Uh, so I, I, I think what we're going to see is the Arab countries that need the U.S. for various things, uh, whether trade or security, they're going to move on. So I don't think there's going to be long-term damage uh, to to the U.S. relationship with some of the Arab countries over over the the specifics of the hospital incident. Are are they going to be angry that the U.S. is supporting Israel? Yes and no. And I say yes and no because no one wants to see the civilian uh, uh, deaths and injuries that has occurred in Gaza. But are the other Arab countries happy that Israel is... is, uh, probably going to destroy Hamas? The answer to that question is yes. Whether that's Egypt or the Persian Gulf countries, they are perfectly okay with with the elimination of Hamas. Okay. Now, um, President Biden's committed a lot of money to Israel um, to help them fight this war. But I presume that's the delivering on that is very dependent upon whether or not we can get a House speaker. And at the moment, it, it doesn't seem very likely, does it? Uh, no, it doesn't seem likely based on the vote a few hours ago where, where Jordan uh, lost uh, again and lost by more <laughs> more, more votes than, than the first day. Uh, but the, the political will seems to be there uh, once they could figure out how to move it. You know, there's been some talk about giving the this uh, uh, speaker pro tempore the power 
to, to move this legislation. So that might be happening in the next few days. Uh, but the political will across the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, it seems to be there to provide billions of dollars in aid uh, to Israel. And uh, as, as has been discussed uh, quite openly, uh, there's a possibility that it's going to uh, be a large bill that encompasses aid, not just to Israel, but to Ukraine as well. And there's more Republican opposition to that, uh, which is why uh, the idea has been brought forward to, to bundle it with Israel aid, which Republicans support. And another winner in Congress is aid to Taiwan, more military aid to Taiwan. So if the, the three get uh, bunched into one legislation, it's highly likely it would pass, and highly likely it would pass regardless of the cost. Okay, Ross. Uh, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed for that. That's Ross Feingold, who's Business Development Director at SafePro Group over in Taipei. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's show, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk.